Welcome to the Sum of It All Unlearning Podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville, along with my colleague Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education. And this season, we're diving into the book Unlearning, Changing Your Beliefs and Your Classroom with UDL by Allison Posey and Katie Novak. Transcripts to our podcast are always available for you in the episode notes on your favorite platform. This week, we're diving into chapter three, Transform Your Tried and True Techniques. And this chapter starts off with this little bit on habits. And they talk about how habits help us develop shortcuts that save us time and energy. There's a description about how our brain works. And and so much of it just like really makes sense to me, almost in a scary way, um, because I have have habits that I don't realize I'm doing consciously anymore. And you know what I'm talking about, Mark? Yeah, 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 unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah, and it's super scary when it's something like, your commute to work and you're like, wait, how did I get here? I hope I didn't run a red light. Um, And then there's other ones that are like less scary where, you know, someone says, do you realize you're clicking your tongue or tapping your finger or something like that? But all of that to say, they transitioned us very quickly into the classroom. And this I had not thought about. The authors talk about just like um, with habits we have in our personal lives, um, sometimes all of the cues we get in our environment, like this, the time of day, the sounds, the sights can trigger like almost an automatic or habitual response, mm. which makes sense. Like when you think about it for the personal side of it, sure. but it's super weird to think about it in a classroom. And so the author shares this idea that like, they're so strong that you might get and stand like in front of a classroom of kids And you might not even realize you go into like the pose and start delivering a mini lecture because that's what you feel like you should be doing. And I don't think I've done this. I hope I haven't. Um, I definitely haven't been conscious of it, but I've definitely seen it happen to others. And I've heard it when certain people have gotten in front of a group of adults and their voice changes usually to a primary school, if they're a primary school teacher, <laughs> uh, like, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, right? yeah. The voice yeah, comes on. Yeah. Okay, boys and girls, <laughs> but they're not talking to boys and girls. They're talking to a room full of adults. And so oh, boy. Like, that idea of standing in front of a group that I, I am guessing they are not conscious of that happening. It is yeah. just habitual sight sound environment happening to them. What are you thinking about? Well, yeah, well, I, you know, I taught at elementary schools for many years. So I, I know the voice that you're talking about. <laughs> Um, And, you know, this chapter really made me reflect on teaching habits that I've worked to break over the years, you know, to your point around habits. um, It's it's really amazing to me how much of our teaching habits are things we inherited without examination or even just a replaying of our childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, like we've Mm -hmm. been through school, so we're going to do school kind of like because it's seeped into us. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, the authors say that part of our brain makes goal-driven decisions is no longer active, you know, kind of like what you were talking about. So like this can be really a good thing, but it also can be a bad thing, depending if the habit is supportive of student learning, right? Mm-hmm. Um, our authors put it like this, while some may be good and effective, meaning the habits, others may be antiquated or perpetuate inequities or actually be harmful. Yeah, that I mean, you think about that, Mark. I mean, I'm already on the edge of my seat. Like, I got to read more. I got to learn about this. And I got to, like, figure this out for myself. Um, But before we go too far into that space, I think it's super interesting to take just a quick tangent. The authors say sometimes this happens for our students, too. Mm. Right? 
that right. they might have an automatic habitual response. And they give the example of being in a history class, but boy, do I think that happens when you walk into a math class or into math time. And that sounds to me like the entire premise of the work that Peter Lilliadal is doing with building thinking classrooms. Like something is being communicated to kids that we don't even realize when they walk into class that tells them they should act a certain way feel a certain way and do certain things in our classes. And we're trying to spend all this time undoing those almost automatic responses that they have. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up Peter Lilliadal's work uh, with building thinking classrooms, because really there were like several places in this chapter that reminded me uh, of that book and that work. And uh, one of them was, you know, the authors bringing the example of the student collaboration as a mm. tried and true technique on page 29. And I really identified with the teacher who like was like, I'm going to bring in protocols. I'm going to ensure that students participate. You know, like I, I'm going to get it a little bit tighter. Um, and I have to admit in the past that I defaulted to making my classroom environment more rigid to push mm -hmm. collaboration. It's almost like I have to control for every variable and have things super, super controlled. And if it could just get a little tighter, it's going to be perfect, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to hold students accountable by having jobs in their collaborative groups, and then we'll get more participation. Instead of considering that my students may have needed more freedom and more options. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, our math world for the last couple of years has just been buzzing uh, about uh, Peter's book. And, you know, as I'm thinking about this piece of control versus freedom, it seems like the teaching practices that Peter advocates for have more of a spirit of control coming from the student uh, versus the teacher. So, um, you know, as we're going on, as we're looking at this chapter, Audrey, I, I'm also thinking about this piece around uh, context mattering. You know, they bring up that piece in page 27. And uh, you and I have been using UDL to frame and inform our professional learning for adult learners. And, you know, part of my connection here, Audrey, is it's making me go back to some of the work that you've been doing and really leading in, in the work that we've been doing around context mattering and through using UDL as that, that lens in our professional learning work. I, I was thinking that it might be interesting to share a little bit of that with our listeners. Yeah, I appreciate that, Mark. I thought about the same thing when, we, when I read that part of the chapter. Um, you know, there's an image that you and I sometimes use when we share about some of the foundational ideas of, of UDL, um, where there's a flower that's like blooming in the sunshine. And then in the next frame, it's like withering in the snow. Um, and it's just this idea that like our variability, each one of us, our variability shows up, can show up as a strength in certain environments. And it can show up as a barrier in other environments that like the context or the environment around us, um, can change how how our variability shows up and how we're seen and the, the context matters greatly. And so I, I think about that um, in light of like what we have control over in the classrooms. And I mm -hmm. think, you know, we've mentioned a whole bunch of times, like it's not about trying to fix students. Um, students aren't broken, um, but what we can fix or change is how we do class. And I think that's really what's at the heart of this chapter is thinking yeah. about, um, letting everything essentially be on the table for that discussion too. Like even per what the chapter's about, these tried and true methods, these things that we hold on to really dearly um, and allowing those to be there and saying like, what about these might I be able to change 
and seeing what happens for our kids. Um, and the authors are really smart about this because, you know, to change the context, it's not as easy as from summer to winter, like watching the seasons change. I mean, we ha- these are kids' lives. Like you can't just say, look, I guess next year I'll start the year out differently and hope that it's a different situation. Um, they mentioned you can't take take a long vacation or remove <laughs> kids from the classes. Like there's right. a lot of things that if if this wasn't people's lives, it would be a lot easier to manage changing a context. Um, but because it is, it, it's it's a bit, you know, it's complex work. Um and so when we get into this idea of, of being critical of these tried and true methods or techniques, it's a really important space for us to have tough conversations. And, um, you know, that's something you and I have tried to do both on the podcast and off the podcast. Um, and, and so like, what's the encouragement here? Is it to make a list of things that we've come to think of as tried and true? Um, and maybe then looking to see what research actually says about them. Um, because like, I, I think the authors do a really interesting job about pointing out some that come up time and time again in conversations we have with teachers, some that people like hold on to very, very firmly as like the thing mm. that they think matters more than anything to student success. But in meta-analysis and looking at like vast amounts of research, it's not actually helpful for student achievement. And so why do we hold on to that? Um, and And before you even get maybe that far, How are you ready to hold on to the idea of like, if I hear something that challenges something that I hold dear, right? Like if I, for instance, if I love homework, I believe in homework. I think doing homework changes student outcomes. I've seen it with my own eyes. I believe it to be true, right? I've taught for a number of years and I I 100% behind it. And someone tells me there's not research to support that homework actually improves student achievement. What is my reaction going to be, right? Because I think in our current climate, we attribute fake news, uh, alternative facts. We have all kinds of phrases we throw out at this stuff as opposed to how do I allow like... um, accountable talk space. You and I talk about this a lot. Like how do I allow space where ideas can really be, um, you know, pushed at and argued with and played with a bit without it becoming a personal attack, without it becoming a personal judgment call. Um, but allowing ourselves to, um, to really put everything out there and say like, if, if I'm putting students first, what am I willing to examine and think about differently? So I said a lot, but I'm thinking about this deeply. This chapter had a lot, had a lot for me to think about. Yeah. I, wow. You, you had some fantastic thoughts there, Audrey. I, I especially resonate with me around that sort of like, how do we, how do we uh, deal with the fact that my personal experience is saying one thing, or I think it's telling me one thing versus this research is telling me another thing. And uh, along with that, I just think the other piece to it is like, how do I press pause in my whirlwind um, long enough for me to decide what I'm going to try to change or it, or I, I, I come to this belief that I, I am ready to change something. How, how do I do that? You know, I'm thinking about like in the past when I've attended workshops that pushed on my tried and true habits, like I'm in experience where I'm being presented with research, kind of like your example. Um, I can think of sometimes where there were so many things that were sort of presented at me that I would leave feeling 
like overwhelmed with how many changes were suggested. So it sort of was like, it was easier just to kind of like push it all aside because I, I didn't know where to start. So, I'm, you know, our authors mentioned something on page 34 that I think is a really important part of all this that we're talking about. Um, and what they say is, do not try to change everything all at once. Instead, explore the new knowledge by trying one thing out and exploring how it works. Um, and I think that's valuable advice because I think we can, because our jobs are so complex and working with students is so complex that it's really important to, to see like, where can my just next step be? And it reminds me of an article years ago. I don't know if you remember this article, Audrey, it's called Never Say Anything That a Kid Could Say. Mm -hmm. It's a really great article about um, thinking about as you're structuring your math class environment and so forth. Um, but there's something else embedded in that article uh, besides all the good things around math instruction. The author also makes a strong case to dedicate yourself to changing one thing each year. And in, in that article, the author even talks about like just if if you if you're a generalist and you teach all content areas, think about that one content area that you're going to make some change to. And I thought that was pretty powerful um, because I think sometimes from the professional learning standpoint, if we're delivering professional learning, we think there's so many things that are so important and so much of an emergency for all of our teachers to embrace and change at once that we don't always think about that that's, that's kind of counterproductive. I think that's a great point, Mark. I really appreciate that. And I know Steve Linewin and others have continued to talk about like that 10% rule, like keep keep a certain part of what you do up for, up for change and up for difference. I think one of the nuances of what I'm hearing in this chapter is about what we're allowing to fit into that 10% or into that mm. one thing we change. Because yeah. I think oftentimes we put in the thing that we don't want to do anyways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. right? Yeah, we yeah, put in the thing yeah. our principal asked us to do, yeah. the thing we don't really like, but we hold on to these other things because they're in um, what the, Hattie calls the grammar of schooling for us. And the authors call out things like ability grouping and teaching to the test and assigning homework and reducing class sizes, like all of these things that like people are like, if we could just have these things, like I'm holding on to these firmly as the thing that's going to make a big difference for students. And what, what would it take for us to give that one of those things, one of those things up, right? What would it take for us to, to put that in our list of change ideas? Um, and maybe not even to say I'm going to change it, but to say I'm going to examine it further. Um, the authors offer, like, let's first talk about what the goal of doing that thing is. Like, um, because if our goal is really about how the design is supporting our intended outcome and the variability of our learners, let's talk that through. Like, we can think about that with any one of those things I mentioned or, or others um, and really think through, like, is it producing the outcome I intended it to produce? And if not, then let's start challenging that tried and true method. So I appreciate that space of saying, let's keep changing, but let's also, let's find that, let's find ourselves some, you know, I don't know, I don't, I don't know what the right thing is that like the willingness to try something that, that we're really holding on tightly to and saying like, I'm willing to put that on the table as well to re-examine that something I'm holding on to dearly. Yeah, but I, I really think it's really cool. You went, you really went back to our last discussion from the last episode, which is around goals. I mean, we really have to think about what what is the intended outcome, what is the goal of that thing, and I really yeah. like how you brought that back up because I think that helps us 
think again and rethink something, right? Um, and you know, there was really a nice example in this chapter, Audrey, this, uh, this, this little story that was told about this figure skating coach and the figure skating coach had, you know, kind of had their tried and true methods of basically how you've always done coaching and with a whole bunch of different skaters at once, um, in a class. And this teacher decided to, to rethink how, how that person decided to hold this, uh, figure skating class. And it's such a wonderful application of UDL. And I think sometimes it's helpful to see examples like this outside of education or TK-12 education anyway. So we can step out of our whirlwind for a moment to think about the nuances of UDL in another context. And that whole example made me want to run back to thinking about teaching math and consider the parallels. And so the, the, the skating teacher had sort of their leveled groups, if you will, with the kids at different levels of, of skating. And you know, we're doing, we do the same thing many times with math. We, we run these so-called ability groups with students, students engaging in discrete skills, just like the skating coach was doing while the teacher is running around trying to jump into each group and, and, and say a few things. And Audrey, that reminded me of in math class, where sometimes what we do is we go and get one-on-one -on -one with one student and we start helping them or giving them the just right question. And we look up and we see that sea of hands of all the other students that we're gonna run around and have private conversations with and, and, and in order to get them to where we want them to be. Um, and in that figure skating analogy, instead the teacher decided to have all the students engage in this one skating technique at the same time and provide entry for all of the skaters for that experience, just like we might if we have a singular task and we do the same thing. And I don't think the figure skating uh, coach picked that jump that they had, a, that the person had as, as, as a random thing. It was something that allowed for access and extension. And most importantly, like to have an authentic and productive collaboration. And you could just see how the authors were writing about it. It was a profound difference for this coach to change uh, the environment that way. So I just, I just thought it was great because I think we can just run right to math class with that example. Yeah, I totally saw the connections to math class. I'm right there with you. One thing in particular that hit me with that example was the coach saying, this is how my skating lessons were given to me when I was learning. It's how parents and students expect it. It's how other coaches give their lessons. Yeah. But I haven't heard that with substitute out the word math. Like we, we sometimes do things because of the expectation for status quo. And I'm not sure I believe that that's the right reason anymore. Um, in comparison, I feel like the UDL version of the lesson, which they give us the insight into, like you were describing, you know, the students have a lot of autonomy. Mm -hmm. um, they're providing feedback to each other. They're navigating different means of instruction. They have a lot of agency. Um, there's a lot of belief in students knowing some things. And when we talk about their brilliance and their uh, expertise being leveraged, like you really see it there. And so um, there's so much that like we could really translate straight over to the math class. And I think we'd see a lot of amazing things happen for our kiddos. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, Audrey, at the bottom of 32 or on 32, um, you know, there's a great quote that I think sort of may summarize this section for us. And it, it goes like this. UDL fundamentally switched the way the entire skating lesson was conducted. It allowed for some of the old frustrating patterns and habits to be broken. And as a result, 
more rigorous and engaging learning was able to take place. It's just, it's so amazing, right? That's why we're talking about how this UDL is transformative. It's, it's the tool for equity friends. Like there's something here that I don't understand why we're just not all jumping up and getting on board with this thing. Um, Speaking of which, speaking of jumping up, I jumped up and down when I looked at the chart on page 33. So um, in a good way, in a good way, um, it really made me, well, maybe I jumped up and well, I jumped, I did lots of, I, it was very interesting chart for me. Um, I guess it's called table 3.1. So if you, when folks have a chance to look at it, um, there are these essential UDL aligned beliefs around Mm, learning and each one of them kind of like pushes at you to really say, is this really what you believe about students about learning? Um, And it reminded me as I started reading it about the productive and unproductive beliefs uh, charts that um, NCTM, the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics Mm -hmm. put out in principles to actions uh, when they wrote that book. Um, But then they have on the right-hand side, this question of what techniques do you integrate into your classroom to support this belief? And so like, it is a great space to say like, if you believe this, then what are the things you are doing to Hmm. match the belief? Hmm. And I think what's maybe missing from the chart, but is in the language right above the chart, which says, which tried and true techniques are you using that may not align with these beliefs? Like, it's kind of like that go stop pause idea. Like, what are you doing that aligns with these? And what are you doing that does not align with these that we really need to stop doing? And I, I just think there's a space here to really work through some of those practices, those habits, those things we don't even realize we're doing in our class that we might need to really take into consideration if we want to change the fundamental feel, nature, values of of our classroom. I I love that as an addition to the chart, Audrey. I think that would really um, sort of, for me as an educator, allow me to be honest with myself about what are the things that I think, because you know what, those may change over time. I might sort of change my mind about some of those as I go through this process. So I, I like including that. Uh, the one thing I'll just add, Audrey, to the discussion around the chart is that phrase high expectations that's in that first row. Um, one of the things you and I've been um, playing around with in terms of language is, is thinking about how we take a phrase like high expectations that to me is sort of like this, you know, kind of just catchphrase that is just, you know, I don't know how much meaning is had left in it. <laughs> um, I think that in all the educators I've worked with, I, I can't picture anybody saying that they don't feel that they have high expectations for their learners. Now, I know in in the chart, it mentions communicating that, which is a little different than than just believing it. But we've we've played around with some other phrases over the last couple of years, like presuming competence with Andrew Gale's um, uh, NCTM um, talk. And then even thinking, can we even push that further? Can we push it further to expecting brilliance from our students? So I think it's it's interesting to, to really think about the language we use in terms of what we expect, because I think having high expectations and expecting brilliance might feel a little bit different as we consider what's the push for us um, as we lead our students. I really appreciate that, Mark. It's a great point. And those words really do change how we center our, our students in that conversation. So thank you for that. Well, as we wrap up our conversation today uh, on another amazing chapter, um, the authors give us three steps 
um, if you're looking for steps. So folks who are looking for guidance and say, okay, but tell me how to do this. <laughs> um, here's what they say. And they give a great example of like how to do it with Allison's work. But um, in general, they say, number one, recognize the old model is no longer relevant or effective. Like that's the first step. Second, find a new model that serves the goals. So back to goals, find a new model that serves the goals. And then number three, you have to ingrain that new mental habit. So thinking of those cues and those things around you that help you remember that habit. Um, and I just appreciate that, you know, they the quote that ends the chapter for me says, UDL understanding starts with our fundamental assumption that all learners can learn and that their capacity to do so can be influenced through the design of our learning environments. And that's something we have control over. And these three steps can help us really change that to be a space for our students to have an infinite capacity there. What about you, Mark? What are you lingering with? What's sticking with you as you close out this chapter? Yeah, you know, that number three is sticking with me that you mentioned, Audrey, in those three steps, the last one being ingrained new mental habits. Um, you know, that as I was referring earlier in our discussion about this idea of not doing everything at once, um, it, this is the section of the chapter that they give that advice of, of starting with some one thing and really unpacking that one thing at a time. And I know that the other aspect of that, I think that would be helpful for our listeners if, if they are in a position where they lead professional learning for other educators. I think that's another place we really have to be cautious that we're we're practicing this this same advice that we're making sure that we're not doing everything at once with our adult learners the same way i think it's really interesting how sometimes we might attend sessions or even lead sessions that we're uh, we again have so many things we want to make sure educators learn that we we may find ourselves guilty of doing the same thing we're saying not to do with students we're doing with adults and rather than allowing them to choose one thing that is their next best step. Um, so, Great point, Mark. Appreciate that. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode. In our next episode, we will chat about Chapter 4, Prioritize Engagement. Until then, what will you unlearn?